The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Holy, holy, holy is your name. You are other. You are distinct, not like us. You are mighty. You are God. And we are people here on the earth, small creatures, frail and failing. And from time to time and for years at times, we are deceived into thinking that we are something, that we are powerful, that we have it together, that we are wise, strong, influential, attractive, meaningful. And then we come clean and realize that we are falling apart and frail. You are mighty. You are God. You are other than us and above us. Distinct, holy is your name. And what is amazing is that you care for us. What are we that you are mindful of us? We, sons and daughters of man, that you even look upon us, but that you care for us and love us and stoop to help you, mighty, holy one, you is amazing. Bless your holy name. look to your word today and see a young girl realizing some of the wonder of this and singing in praise therefore to you Lord I pray that you would open our eyes to the scriptures and to the truth in it and to you and that we then along with her would sing in rejoicing There is a humbling that comes to us when we realize who we are. And then if we would realize who you are, there would be a great rejoicing. And we are all in need of it. Our minds and our hearts, we we hop and we skip around from idea and concept and worry and thought to from one to another and we forget you. But Lord, would you this morning, would you open up your word and would you fasten us to you and make us very aware of us and very aware of you? And would you build into your people here this morning, mighty Father? Would you build into your children here this morning some deeper, some some more resolved heart of joy? Build into us rejoicing that is genuine and is deep and is wide and is long. Long Long-lasting all through eternity, beginning even now. Because while we walk in a world that has fallen and while we walk frail with limbs that decay, you, in fact, still remain the Mighty One. And you have done great things for us. Help us to see some of that this morning and to 
become, if we are not already to become, and if we are to, to remain and grow in. Help us to become a rejoicing people. Help me to be, become a rejoicing person. Help each person here individually to become a rejoicing person. And then help us as a people to be a rejoicing people. Because of you. Open our eyes to see. Speak in your word. Draw near, Father, we pray. Thank you. Amen. We turn our attention this morning to the middle of Luke chapter 1. And as we've been following the story of Luke over the last three weeks, we've seen him begin to lay out his orderly account, that's what he calls it, his orderly account of what God has accomplished in Jesus. And he begins that story by telling us of two completely unexpected pregnancies. First, the angel comes to a priest named Zechariah, who is an older man with an older wife, past childbearing years. He's a priest, and while he's on duty at the temple, the angel comes to him and says, as improbable as this is, your wife Elizabeth is going to have a son, a special son, one whom the Lord is going to use to prepare a people for his coming work of salvation. This is not any old son. This is a special son, John the Baptist. And John's going to preach to prepare a people. He's going to preach particularly about sin to turn people, preach about repentance to turn people towards the one then that he points out, this is the king, this is the Messiah. Okay, this kind of dual ministry of turning people and pointing them in the right direction towards the king. That's the first birth. And the second one, the angel then comes to this young girl named Mary to announce the birth of the coming king. She's engaged to be married. She's very young. She's engaged to be married. She's kept herself pure before marriage and therefore cannot possibly conceive a child. Yet with God, nothing is impossible. He's going to overcome all impossibilities, all barriers, all stoppages. He's going to overcome everything necessary to keep his promise to bring the king. So he's going to do that. He's going to send his great king, the Savior, the deliverer of his people. And Mary believes that and then rushes off to see her relative Elizabeth. The two, the two strains connect. You're going to run off to see Elizabeth. And as soon as she arrives, Elizabeth and John, the baby inside of her, both filled with the Holy Spirit, the text had told us, they both leap and exclaim and rejoice over meeting that which God is doing, over meeting the king. Elizabeth cries out in joy worships, and she honors Mary, a model for us of one who believes that there would be fulfillment of that which God promised. This is one of the points we emphasized last week. Mary hears from Elizabeth, and we should hear from Elizabeth the last sentence there in verse 45. Blessed is she, blessed is the one who believes there would be fulfillment of that which God said, who believes that what God said, that he will do. Blessed is the one. Good comes to the one who believes what God says rather than believes what other people say, rather than believes what our own heart says, what our own eyes think is right. Good comes to those who believe God's word. 
That's Elizabeth's joyful proclamation of blessing over Mary. And now this morning, we come to Mary's response to what Elizabeth says. So we're still in that same setting, still there at Zechariah's house. And now it's Mary's turn to talk. And what she, how she responds, she sings this song, this, this hymn, this psalm of praise. It's a special, it's a well-known song. Sometimes it's called the Magnificat. My Bible even has that word in there as a heading. It's from the Latin word for magnify that appears in verse 46. This is kind of a well-known passage. She sings this song of praise, and it's very similar. It is so similar that, that we can't miss the connection. It's very similar to the song of praise sung by Hannah. Luke's kind of walking through this story and trying to, in several ways we've already talked about previously, trying to make clear the connection. What's going on with Mary should remind us of what God did with Hannah back when he brought Samuel and began the thread of king in his people. Hannah, when her son Samuel the prophet was born, sang with praise, exalting what God would do in his king, even though there wasn't a king yet. She saw this day coming. And Mary now sings a song very similar to it. She's seen this day come. And yet she also, while looking at what has happened, is also still looking ahead. And those two pieces, looking at what's happened and rejoicing over that, and looking ahead as to what will happen and rejoicing over that, those two pieces are going to form kind of the bulk of what we're going to talk about this morning. Those are going to be my, my two observations from the passage. But first, I'm going to read it. This is Mary's song of praise. Luke 1, I'm going to begin in verse 46 and read down through verse 56. I'm going to read the passage and then make two observations from it. Luke 1, 46. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold... From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent empty away. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. It's the passage. I'm going to make two observations. Here's the first one. Both of them are about joy because that's where she begins. First, rejoice for the mighty one has done something great. Rejoice for the mighty one has done something great. There's a call there, an exhortation to rejoice because of reason. That dynamic, rejoice because of, that's what we're going to kind of work on here in this first observation, because if we see how this dynamic, rejoicing because of something, if we see how it works and then get the because of, it'll work backwards in our hearts and it'll lead to joy. 
So we're going to look at this dynamic and try to really carefully understand the because of part. She begins, verse 46, My soul magnifies the Lord. My soul exalts, magnify, exalts, lifts up, makes a big deal out of. Does this too magnifies? My inner self sings out, God is great. Big, large, wonderful, awesome, magnifies. And then, verse 47, next line, a parallel statement. My spirit, parallel to soul, rejoices in, parallel to magnifies, God my Savior, parallel to Lord. So we notice this parallel statement. It's going to give us a, a clue, give us a hint, give us some help, tell us something that's helpful in trying to understand what rejoicing is and how we can fuel it. Each of these parallels, they're not different things. They're just different ways of saying the same thing. Soul and spirit, same basic thing. We don't have souls and spirits. We have an inner person and an outer person. Soul and spirit, different ways of describing the same inner man. Lord and God my Savior, not two different things, just different ways of describing the same. And also then, magnify and rejoice, not two different things, different ways of describing the same thing. And that tells us something. Rejoicing. And the word she uses here, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a real word. It's not, I'm kind of happy. The same word used up in verse 44 about the, the baby leaping for joy. This word is used repeatedly in contexts that are, that are exuberant, that are really fully charged with joy. She is rejoicing. That is, let me say it a different way, magnifying. These things are connected. This, this exuberant, this, this charged rejoicing is not just, this is the important point, is not just emotionalism. It's not just a feeling. It is indeed emotion, and it is indeed feeling. It is exuberant. It is full but it's not just emotion. It's not just feeling. Another way you could say it is, my soul, the inner person, is exuberantly charged with feeling. That is, it's doing this to God. It's magnifying. It's exalting. It's lifting Him up. It's expanding. It's making that which appeared small otherwise big, large, full, grand. This is related to joy. If you want joy, if you want rejoicing, approach it mentally this way. Magnify the Lord. Because this is rejoicing in God my Savior. Magnifying the Lord. Not just the stuff in life. Now, I say this and I know we get this. We get this. 
This kind of exuberant, full joy is not found in. Mary does not find it in. We don't find it in the stuff we can touch, in the stuff here and now. We, we don't find it in human relations. We don't find it in health and wealth and houses and cars and jobs and prestige and power. We don't find it there. And you know that. I'm just saying it again because we always forget that and chase it there. I'm not, I'm not telling anything you don't know, but I'm just reminding you You and I, we both know this and we both chase it there. But this kind of joy, this kind of rejoicing is in the Lord, in God my Savior. From this, magnifying Him. That's the parallel in those first two. Her opening parallel points us in that direction. If I want this kind of exuberant rejoicing, I should be thinking, magnify the Lord. Well, what is it that magnifies him here in this passage? Verse 48, for, here's the reason, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior for, and there are two fours here. Now some of our English translations probably have three fours, two of them in verse 48 and one in verse 49. The middle one there is a different word, it's not actually, it's a sub-point. It's not one of the main points. She gives two reasons. Two fours. One at the beginning of 48, one at the beginning of 49. My soul magnifies the Lord. I rejoice for and for. The two things magnifying the Lord in her mind. For God has looked on the humble estate of his servant, meaning herself. And then she makes another statement about herself. And from now on, all generations will call me blessed. And even in verse 49, the second reason, when she's talking about God, she ties that back to herself. For he has done great things for me. Mary is so me, me, me here which is usually wrong, but clearly is not wrong here. The first reason, the first thing that she says here about I'm magnifying the Lord is because me, me, me. Because this me, me, me is, is the window through which she looks to see what is magnificent about God. She magnifies the Lord In this way, look at me. This is Mary. Look at me. I'm a young teenager from a lower class family. We know that because of the type of sacrifice she and Joseph offered at the temple when Joseph was born. They offered the sacrifice of the poor. I'm a young teenager from a poor family from Nowheresville, Nazareth. I'm unmarried and I'm a girl. I am the walking definition of insignificant. She is. We could go on. She's not a Roman citizen. She has nothing. She is the walking definition of lowly estate. And yet he who is mighty 
uniquely so. Holy is his name. When she says holy is his name, she's not speaking of, as we've already talked and I've already prayed along these lines, so you might realize this. She's not speaking of his moral purity. She's speaking of his distinctness, of his set-apartness. He is mighty, holy in his might. He is set apart, unique, and distinct. There are mighty kings on the earth, but none like this one. This one's name is Holy. And that one is God, my Savior. My Savior. The mighty kings of the earth don't even see people like me. Let alone stoop to care about them. Let alone do something, some small thing, nice and, and, and kind to them. Let alone do something glorious and great and awesome for them. Such that in, in my very womb, I feel it moving around. The times are turning over inside of me. I'm a nobody. The mighty, the set apart, holy, holy, holy one has looked upon me. Who am I that he would care about me? I am the definition of nothing. And he is God, my Savior, the one who has drawn near, who has blessed me. And other people in all generations through time are going to say, oh, how fortunate you are. The mighty one touched you. This is her first her first reason for this great rejoicing, her first, that is, magnifying of the Lord, not because in some way or another she kind of twists this around to become, hey, I am somebody. Not at all. But because she says, I am nobody, but this one looked on me. What kind of God is he? What kind of mighty high and exalted and lifted up Savior is He, that He would look on and work through people like me. God often works that way. He chooses the meek and the lowly and is willing and in fact even deliberately goes out of His way often. He even tells us so to use the meek and the lowly and the nothings. 1 Corinthians 1 talks about how he deliberately chooses such ones in order to shame those who think they deserve it, who think they are wise and think they are strong. And God says, just to show you that it isn't about human strength, that it isn't about human wisdom, I will use the nothings. Now, this may just be theoretical and, and, and nice unless you are one of the nothings. And what this then says to you is God's eye is for you too. This, in fact, is one of Luke's themes. Of, of the Gospels, Luke uniquely picks out the nothings. Luke has a lot of women in his Gospel, by comparison. Women are nothings in this world. I don't mean this world. I mean this world, the ancient world. Women are nothings. Poor people are nothings. People with disabilities are nothings. People who aren't all that smart or who aren't all that powerful aren't all that wealthy. They are nothings in this world. And Luke, more than other gospel writers, not exclusively so, but more than others, grabs a hold of them and says, look what God did for this one. Look what God did with this one. Look what God did with this one. God, the real God, does with such ones. 
Maybe that just theoretically adjusts your worldview because you are one of the people who walks the corridors of power in this world. But maybe you aren't one of the people who walks the corridors of power and you are one of the lowly ones. This is good news for you. The God of the Bible, the God who is real, has his eye on you. You are not beneath his radar and insignificant. You may feel that way in the world, but you aren't. Not because, in fact, you are somebody. No, you aren't. But because of God and the fact that he is the mighty one with a heart for the lowly. A heart that is a heart of mercy. A heart that is humble and gracious and kind. You are not beneath him. He has his eye on you and he cares for you and he will use you. Mary is feeling that and is marveling at it. Particularly because what he has done for her, this is the second four, is alarming. He didn't even just use her in, in some middle-level task. The one and only time he brings the Messiah into the world as an unborn baby, he chose her. <laughs> he who is mighty has done great things for me, something great in particular for her and for all who fear him, wherever they may be found in the world, even you and I. For all who fear him. He has done great things. He has drawn near and become God my Savior. Now some of these great things we're going to talk about in the second point because they're coming up in the following verses. But initially, we have to see what he did that was great as he became God her Savior. We need to be saved in a host of different ways. And God answered every one of those needs. God drew near, entered into, God entered into this world, entered into this time and this place, entered into flesh even in this world to save. We're all born and raised, we grow up, we live now spiritually dead apart from Christ, alienated from him. And that means many, many things. First and foremost, of course, it means that we stand under sin before God, under judgment before God. And gloriously, that's what this baby that's twisting inside of us, this baby's about, this baby's born to die on a cross. So we celebrate in this coming week here. This baby is come to save from sin. She doesn't understand that right here. She doesn't understand the rest of this Gospel of Luke. She doesn't understand the cross. We do. We have to be clear about that. When she says, God, my Savior, she has some other things that I'll mention in a moment in mind. But we have to be clear that that first and foremost, men and women, 
God has drawn near to people of humble estate, people who fear him, to save from sin in one and in only one way, by sending a Messiah to the cross to die to pay your sin penalty. A mighty and marvelous thing he has done. Many of us, I know many of us here, I don't know everybody here, but many of us here, we know that. He is a savior to you. Beyond that, because of that, but beyond it. Even now, you you experience, as a Christian, if you're a Christian, even now you experience, I I am walking through this world, saved, made new, alive, and yet struggling and stumbling often a fool, stubborn, unsure, afraid. In every single one of those situations, you need a Savior. And God says, I have drawn near to become that for you. We need a teacher to point the way. And, and, and he sent us Christ as prophet to explain, to, to give the word. We need an intercessor to gain us access to God. And he sent us a high priest who can go into, and even when we, with with stumbling words, say, God, all I can say is, help. Christ then stands at the right hand of the Father and says, I will lift up those prayers, and I will make them before the Father for you, interceding constantly. We don't just need to know the way. He told us the way. We, We need him to prayerfully move our hearts And he does that as priest for us. We need a leader to rule over us and shepherd us because we don't just need to know what is the way we should go and we don't just need him to be at work in our hearts in in an inner way. We need him to be a a controller, a a constrainer, a, a restrainer of our waywardness. And he's a king and a shepherd who holds us back on course who moves us by his Spirit to follow his decrees. He has looked upon us, his people, in this world and has become a Savior to you, first and foremost, of your sin, saving you from wrath, yes, and then saving you every day afterwards from ignorance and failure and fear. Mighty things he has done for you. And if you want, if you aspire to exuberant joy, what must happen in your heart is this, a magnifying of God that begins with, I am a nothing, I am lowly, and he stoops to meet me. And then it continues beyond that, he meets me as Savior to redeem me from sin and to walk with me through life. Oh, holy and marvelous is this God for you. Christian and would he be for you if you're not yet a Christian apart from him you are left to yourself under wrath lost Christian God has done mighty things for you in sending the king to save. Right here, 
we fall down often. And I, and I mean, to, mean to, to poke at this a little bit, not in, not in some way, so I, I'm off of any subject, I'm not thinking about any way about convicting you of sin. I'm not trying to talk about that at all. So when we fall down and we fail, I don't mean in a sin way. I mean in a, this is a sad, I mean this in a sorrowful way. We fall down right here. Because I was just talking about, I'm, I'm just kind of trying to do this. I'm talking about God who draws near and God who draws near to save and God who addresses sin and God who guides and God who works in our hearts and God who, who shepherds us with, with power over us to control us for good. And many of us say, yeah, yeah, uh-huh, okay, I, I got it, I believe that, I agree. Okay, what's next? And we miss the fact that this is all in the conversation about rejoicing. And we make this in our minds to be like two separate conversations. And my whole point of the drawing out the parallel from 46 and 47 is to say they aren't separate, they are the same. You, I, you desperately want to be a rejoicing person. Desperately. More than anything else you want in life. You can play this little game if you want to, but later you can think, no, no, I think I want that more. Run that back. That's, That's related to rejoicing. You want to be a rejoicing person. Whatever it is you want, it's underneath of rejoicing. And that comes to your heart when you magnify the Lord. These two pieces here, that he would stoop to meet with the lowly and he would stoop to meet with the lowly to save, are critical. Logs on the fire. They they are massive chunks of fuel. Huge magnifying glasses, if you want. We can mix the metaphors here. That will do this to God and do this to your heart. If you don't separate them, but keep them together, and you think, I want joy, and that means I don't pursue it directly. It means I run to God and say, show me your greatness. Show me your might. Show me your holiness. And if that would happen, then this follows. They're connected. He has done mighty things for us. And this deserves not, not just for his honor, for the, the right and proper and orderly worship of him. This deserves our attention because you will find it is the fuel for the joy that your heart's longing for. Rejoice, for he has done mighty things for us. And the second point. Rejoice, for the mighty one is remembering his promise to do even more. So rejoice in the Lord. He has done great things. And now, forward, he's remembering his promise to do even more great things. Verses 51, 52, and 53 describe a reversal of life situations. Shoe on the other foot. World turned upside down, or 
or perhaps we should say world once again turned right side up. Big change. And it hasn't happened yet when Mary describes it. The baby's not even born yet. The baby's come, but the baby's not born yet, let alone all this happened. But she sees it with eyes of faith, just like Hannah, centuries before, saw it with eyes of faith, saw God exalting his king. Now she sees what God's going to do in that king, and she describes it in language as if it's a done deal. We should think of this as if it's a done deal while holding it in the real tension that it isn't yet a done deal. It's not happened yet, but it will. His strong arm scatters those who are proud in their hearts. He brings down the mighty from their thrones. These are the things that are different. He tears down the high and mighty, the proud, those in authority. In verse 53, he, he brings down the rich, sends them away empty. And in place, he lifts up those who are of humble estate and he fills the hungry with good things. Reverse, change. The work, the, the great work that he did in sending Messiah is, is a work in here, on me, about the individual. And it is a work, it is a full, wide kingdom work that says if I can do it like this, salvation and salvation. Renewal, renewal. Change, change. Everywhere, from one corner to the other, in every category of life, all things that you can think of become right. Messiah comes his kingdom comes. His will is done on earth as it is in heaven. And he overthrows the proud and the powerful and the rich and lifts up the lowly and the humble and the poor. There is a glorious reversal of fortunes coming. For whom? Important question. Important qualifier. For whom? Because some folks, and you can read some people who call themselves Christians, have taken this passage and others like it, and have taken this, skipped the question, for whom, and have just said, aha, there, that's what I was looking for. And have developed a whole theology that says, anti-rich, anti-powerful, in favor of the poor, in favor of the lowly, across the board, universally, everybody. Various kinds of Theologies have developed from this passage, illegitimately so. There's an important qualifier. For whom? Notice what comes right before and right after 51, 2, and 3. His mercy is for those who fear him. From generation to generation. That's 50. Then 54. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. The limits, God's mercy before and after, on those who fear him, that is, on Abraham and his children. This is not universal, 
This is particularly limited, carefully so. Limited to Abraham and his people, those who fear him. And just to be clear, this is reaching back into the Old Testament and grabbing hold of Abraham's received promise from God in chapter 12 of Genesis. Abram, to you and to your people, to your seed, your offspring after you, I'm going to bless you and I will give you all the earth, in fact. Not just this little plot of land, everywhere. I'm going to give it all to you and to your people. Who are his people? Those who fear him. Paul clarifies this in Romans 4. The people of Abraham are not just ethnically defined. As Paul says in Romans 4, the people of Abraham are those who have a like faith as Abraham. Circumcised or uncircumcised, Jew or Gentile. They are of their father Abraham if they are believers in Messiah like their father Abraham was. He's the father of those who fear Christ. Which means you, Gentile. Or you, Jew, if you believe. Now, I do think that there are ethnic Jews who are Christians even now, and there will be, Romans 9, 10, 11 say, there will be a large ingathering of ethnic Jews to faith in Christ. So God has not forgotten ethnic bloodline descendants of Abraham. But we need to be very clear. Bloodlines don't define God's blessing. Faith in Christ defines God's blessing. Those who fear Him, who are children of Abraham, to them God is bringing a great reversal turning the world right side up again. And we should rejoice in that. He has done something now in my heart, in your heart, if you're a Christian, individually and personally. And He is doing something more. And is remembering, I promised, and I will overcome every barrier to bring it about. I will fix, renew, change, restore which is great news. There is relief coming from all of the world's, all of the world's sorrows and all of the world's troubles and persecution and plague and suffering. It is all coming down. As I say that, for some of us, we kind of sit here in middle class America and say, that's great, I guess, but I mean, I don't really suffer the plagues and the persecutions and the hardships. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm probably kind of one of the rich, in fact, and I've got a fair bit of influence and power in my life, so I'm not sure which side of this I actually want to be on. Well, we need to think about this a little bit. There's a big picture reality that you have to reckon with, even if you are kind of the kind of a common, middle-class American, kind of doing okay. We still need to think about something. It may be that materially and experientially at the moment, we're doing okay, but this world as it is, is at odds with, in fact, the Bible's language is, hates 
your father. And so it hates you. I'm going to be clear about some things here, but don't misunderstand. I, I'm not angry at the world. I'm, I'm not. I'm going to use the word hate because it's in the Bible. I'm going to use the word words persecution and opposition because those are in the Bible. Those are real. But I'm not against the world. This is the reality, though. The world hates your father, which means it hates you. Even if... As things are going right now, things are kind of feeling okay. They aren't, though, and you discover that. We discover that, don't we? It was prayed earlier for those recently martyred in other countries. There are people in other countries who are real clear that the world hates our Father and hates us. And in this country, while we don't face that kind of open persecution and open violence, you bump into it, don't you, when you at the office or across the fence or at the coffee shop, you start talking about the exclusivity of Christ. The exclusivity of biblical Christianity and that everything else isn't Christianity and every other faith in the world is idolatry. That it is false, that it leads people to a real hell under the real wrath of God forever. I mean, you know, you mention that. And we find out, don't we? The world does not like us. We don't hate the world. We don't, and I'm not in what I'm saying here, I'm just trying to to be clear and, and honest about this, the world hates what we are really about. One God Eternally existing in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. A real law, not a a collection of items of advice. A real law backed up by real judgment and real wrath and real hell forever. And a single Savior who died on the cross to save people who need to be saved. That's what the Bible, that's what we are really about. And the world is not. Again, I know that you know that. But what I'm saying is that can you imagine, think into this, one day the world will be about that. When this happens, and the world is made new, and this whole place will be a place I don't know what it looked like exactly. I don't know if it looked like this gym. I I hope we lose the cinder block. (laughs) It'll be a physical world. We will live in a physical world. And everything in that world and all the people in that world will be more delighted in all that I was just talking about than you, in fact, are right now. You will be redeemed. You will see clearly and fully. And everybody else all around you will see clearly and fully. No longer through a glass dimly, but face to face. We will all behold him and delight and delight and delight. Can you imagine that? No, you can't, in fact, imagine that. Because you don't know anything like it right now. We have to restrain ourselves and talk carefully. And when we go into the coffee shop, be polite and correct. So as not to offend 
That's going to all go out the window and be able to say what we really think and more than we even know now. And it will be beautiful. That's coming. And more than just the opposition from the world around us, we all still in this moment right now live in a world that's busted. We stand up for a time. I can stand up tall and straight right now. In some time, I won't be able to. Because this is busted. So is yours. It's frail and it's falling apart. And our minds are decayed. And our hearts are wicked. Ah, Let alone them out there. I got problems right here. I am made new, but I am not totally new yet. Nor are you. And our bodies are decaying and falling apart. We suffer from sin in this world, from systems that we can't understand and can't overcome. Even where there isn't anything deliberately evil or deliberately oppositional, the world just is broken and our bodies are falling apart and we are subject to decay and we all look down the road at the end and we fear it. Even though we don't fear it in Christ, we fear it. And that's all going away. When he turns the world right side up, mighty things he has done. He's remembering his promise to do everything, not just to save us from sin personally and individually, but to save us from sin and its effects. will save us from the very presence of any and all sin. He will stretch forth His mighty arm and cast out all who oppress, all who make war on God's people. Everything, high and mighty, every disease and every frailty and every trouble and every affliction will be gone. Spiritual forces of evil will be no more. They will be locked in a pit, gone. And He will fill us with good things and we will never again lack and we will shed no more tears. A new heaven and a new earth. And we will marvel in that day, marvel at the mercy shown by that one to people like us, lowly, insignificant people like me. What a God he is. It is important that we not just get our eschatology straight as if it has nothing to do with our rejoicing. They are intimately connected. Our rejoicing is very tightly connected to another way of talking about it is this, the magnification of the Lord, O oh my soul. And thinking rightly about what he is doing, about the shoe on the other foot, about the world turned right side up, and everything that that means, thinking rightly about that will do this to your view of God, who with a mighty arm has promised and is even now undertaking it. He will, he is, and he will magnify the Lord on my soul, that is, rejoice with exceeding joy. 
It is important for our joy. It is important for His honor. And it is important for the love of the world because when we walk like that, we do two things. We testify accurately to who God is. This God controls me. That's going to come out of me. People are going to see that in me. I'm going to testify accurately to it. And when that happens, and the, the few moments that has happened, that I have experienced this in my life. As I have walked in that, that's the kind of life, that's the kind of person that can give everything away. You could give away whatever you have, your time, your resources, even your physical life. You can give it away. And not grudgingly, like, pry it out of your hands, give it away. But just almost thoughtlessly, here. Like a billionaire gives away a buck. Here. I'm not impoverished by this. Here. I'm not even affected by this. Here. Here. I'm drawing Real deep joy from somewhere else. Have my life. It is important for the honor of God. It is important for our own rejoicing. It is important for God's mission through us in the world to give away our lives. We can do that if we have them fastened to something else who will never leave us nor forsake us. I'm preaching way over my head here. Okay, to be honest about that, I'm preaching way over my head here. I can see a little bit of it from where I'm standing, and it's wonderful, and I want it, and I want it for you. So people of God, press after him. Seek him out. Seek to magnify him by understanding the marvel of him stooping to meet you, to save you, to bless you, and to save the world all around you. Press hard after that for your own joy and for his honor and for the love of other people. Let me pray. God, would you work in us, please, to show us who you are, to magnify you yourself in our eyes, seen in the marvelous great things you've done for us. Lord, help us to see them, to see you in them, to believe, to walk blessed as blessed ones who believe there will be a fulfillment of all that you have said. Give us grace and help us, Lord. And as we take in our hands these elements from communion, would you speak to us again assurance? The blood has been shed. The covenant is made. It's sure. The blood has been shed. The sin is atoned for. It's gone. And you will never leave us nor forsake us, but are in fact coming for us. Give us faith to believe it. Speak with your people now, I pray, Lord. Thank you. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 
84121.